the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears and talk old movies, or at least old uh, film families, with uh, an acclaimed author and veteran historical journalist, Terry Chester Shulman, who joins me by phone. His new book, uh, Film's First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos. Terry, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, Terry, the first question that, that I thought of when, when I saw that your book was coming out, um, The Untold Story of the Costellos, the first thing that went through my head was, is this Lou Costello, Abbott and Costello <laughs> fame? Is there any connection there? Well, there kind of is. Uh, Lou Costello's... Uh, actual uh, given name was Castillo, and the story goes that Helene Costello, who's who's one of the Costello family and, and important part of it, um, either gave him her name or he took uh, his, his stage name from her. So there is kind of a vague connection there. But the, um, aside from that, and I think of myself as a fan of old movies, 
I'm not really familiar with the Costello family name, but it's uh, uh, alleged that um, their legacy lives on most notably through actress Drew Barrymore. Now, the Barrymore no fat name that's, I know very well. Correct. What is the connection between the Barrymores and Costellos? Well, um, just a bit of background. First, the Costello family is Maurice Costello, who's really the first great notable modern screen actor, the first actor who we would recognize as a movie star, uh, and his illustrious daughters, Dolores, um, who, uh, well, Helene, who uh, starred in the very first uh, all-talking picture, The Lights of New York, uh, in 1928, so she's, she's a very important figure in the history of Hollywood and films. And her older sister, uh, Dolores, married, and here's the connection, John Barrymore, Wow. Uh, the Great Profile, and um, they had two children, and um, uh, uh, John Drew Barrymore, the son of Jack and Dolores, um, is the father of Drew Barrymore. And, of course, Lionel Barrymore. Yeah, so we all know Lionel um, from It's a Wonderful Life, um, and you know even people who, who aren't who aren't um, film film people or, or film really knowledgeable or film fans or film nerds, I should say, um, <laughs> have have seen Lionel Barrymore. You caught me, uh, Terry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I, that's, how, I, that's how I refer to myself, really, sadly. Um, <laughs> but what was, aside from, from those two, um, Maurice and, and Elaine, and, and their role in early films. What is it that makes the Costellos Flint's, or I keep saying Flint instead of film, forgive me. Film, oh, yeah. Film's huh. first family. Right. Well, as, as I said, Maurice Costello uh, was the first great movie star, and um, his influence on on film is enormous. You were talking bef before about why they're they're not uh, as uh, as well known as they should be. Somehow they just kind of slipped under the radar. And um, to the extent that that one day I was um, I, I had this beautiful farm in Virginia, and I think I was mucking stalls, and I and this 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 thought came into my head. It was who was the first great movie star and. And I thought about it, and when no answer was forthcoming, I began to do some research, um, and that led me to write this book. And, and I was able to uh, definitively say that the first star uh, uh, and the first international movie star was Maurice Costello. So, you know, he's such an important figure. Um, he was the first, if you can imagine somebody doing this, he uh, created the job description of screen actor by being the first actor to refuse to what was called double and brass. It was common um, in, in those days, around 1907, when he first uh, started making movies, for um, actors were kind of jacks of all trades around the studio. They, they had other jobs that they had to do. Uh, the men built sets, the, the, the women uh, sewed costumes. Um, one of the earliest female stars, uh, Florence Turner, uh, handed out paychecks <laughs> at the Vitagraph Studios every week. So just, you know, kind of imagine Margot Robbie 
doing that now, and you get an idea of just how different the film business was uh, when he, when Maurice Costello uh, left his stage uh, career to go to work for Vitagraph, which was then the most uh, successful and innovative movie studio in America. So the story goes, and it's it's been corroborated by a lot of a lot of uh, uh, people who um, saw it happen. At the time, on his first day of work, he was handed a hammer, which was customary, and told to get uh, busy. And his uh, his reply was, "I'm an actor. I don't build sets." And he he storms up to the front office and, and gives them an ultimatum. And the policy was abolished at uh, the Vitagraph Studios and then ev- everywhere else in the the industry at the time. Um, so uh, you know, as a result of this, so many of the uh, attendant professions that go into the making uh, of a modern film, set carpentry, costuming, uh, financial administration, that uh, in poor Florence Turner's case, um, she was was involved with, came into being because actors became uh, actors exclusively. Um, So uh, he also did something else that's pretty incredible. Uh, He saw himself on the screen for the first time and he he uh, he uh, looked looked at himself, and uh, he uh, was was disturbed by what he called a terribly swift, jerky, and unconvincing appearance up there on the screen. So what he did was he created the very first um, school of screen acting technique, which he called the slow motion style. So he actually slowed everybody down. And if you look at his films around 1912 and 1913, they move very naturally. So Maurice Costello is this kind of towering figure um, in in the, the development of early film, and, and his his daughters uh, were so important uh, because, as I said, Helene starred in the first talking picture, all talking picture actually, Al Jolson. Um, is is noted for the, the jazz singer, but that was only a partially talking picture. Uh, the Lights of New York was was all the way was you know talking uh, all the way through, and um, so she's she's really also a really important figure. And of course, uh, John uh, uh, Dolores married uh, John Barrymore and uh, kind of begat the Barrymore dynasty. So that's, that's why, that's how I base my, my claim on, on just how important and influential they, they were. That, that is important because that transition, um, in the, in the very early days of film studios, before that, there were people making films and it would have been all hands on deck. Everybody would have done a little bit of everything because they were more exactly. like troops than how we understand film studios today. And that would have exactly. carried, that would have carried over into the early days of, of developing studios like Vitagraph and, and others. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's very true. Um, it was, you know, it was it was a much different uh, world. For one thing, uh, actors were not identified by name until 1910. Um, the studios didn't wanted to keep them anonymous so they wouldn't have to pay them, <laughs> pay them like stage actors. But also, the actors themselves didn't want to be known because um, Helene Costello likened it uh, to uh, to prostitution because 
uh, in when when they were starting out, that's that's how screen actors were looked at. They they were um, they had sunk so low uh, that you know they couldn't make it on the stage. So uh, they they lowered themselves to going into the lowly film business. Um, so they didn't want to be known by name. So in nineteen in nineteen ten, it kind of all. Uh, films were becoming uh, legitimate and uh, becoming uh, popular to the extent that um, the movie-going public saw their their favorite actors on the screen, but they didn't know who their names were. So they kept writing, in Maurice Costello's case, they kept writing to Vitagraph saying, who's the man with the dimples? Um, <laughs> until Really, until finally he became known as Dimples. They didn't know his name, but... But uh, they, uh, Vitagraph outed him in, in October of, of 1910, and he went on really to become the first screen heartthrob in this matinee idol. And um, he would get it took it took two men uh, to pull in his sacks of fan, fan mail, and he was also uh, the first actor to to get fan mail. Um, so, so he's really, really important in, in that way, and kind of establishing what a what a movie star was. It's it's funny what uh, what Helene Costello said uh, said about not wanting to be necessarily recognized, um, yeah, in in film, um, and it, and it reminds me, you know, this idea that stage acting somehow had more credibility than film acting not just in the very beginning but even later as as film studios begin to evolve and i'm reminded of the line that peter o'toole gives as uh movie star alan swan in the movie uh, uh my favorite year right when he says i'm not an actor i'm a movie star <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's right um, well, this is even even uh, before that, and one of the, the main reasons that stage actors uh, first appeared in movies, and a lot of them weren't even stage actors. A lot of them were just you know, kind of pulled pulled off the street because of the way they looked, or they happened to live nearby uh, the early studios, or 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 you know whatever, um, you know. So, or were friends uh, and family of the guy with the big idea. I'm sorry. Uh, they were often friends and family yeah, of, of whoever exactly right. had the big idea. You know, I'm going to make a movie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and another another uh, factor was that Vitagraph paid five dollars a day, which uh, in those days was a lot of money. And you got paid all, all you had to had to do uh, all the the camera had to do was crank and. Uh, and or if you showed if you if it rained or, and and you you showed up you got paid anyway and um, the average stage actor unless you're a big big star um, got half of that so so the money that's really what it uh, what drew the the all three of the Barrymore um, uh, the royal family as they of the stage as they came to be known made movies because of the money because Terry. Uh, you know actors. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, I need to put a comma here. I have to take a break. Can sure. you stick around so we can talk some more? Of course, I'd love to. All right. Terry Shulman is the author of 
film's first family, the untold story of the Costellos, and we'll Everybody have more straight do ahead. It, brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place 
where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we continue our conversation about Film's First Family, the untold story of the Costellos, a uh, book by acclaimed author and veteran historical journalist Terry Chester Shulman, who joins me by phone. Terry, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) I I wrote that copy, by the way, about uh, the, the acclaimed author. Uh, stuff that, <laughs> that you were talking about for my biography. Well, and and I and I meant to say and humble too. No, of course, <laughs> always. <laughs> Terry, we were talking about uh, speaking of humility. We were talking about um, the Costellos in the in the last segment, and and why they weren't even though they got connected to the Barrymores through marriage and so on why they weren't as as well known or as as well remembered as um you know you referred to the Barrymores I think as as Hollywood royalty yes and and I'm wondering why it is that they went unnoticed because it wasn't for lack of trying they were kind of uh eccentric and and uh Yes, indeed. Um, it wasn't for any were, lack of trying to get attention, is what I'm saying. I guess. Yeah, they they were Hollywood's uh, original uh, dysfunctional family, um, <laughs> and uh, sort of later on um, in in their careers, uh, this was not the sort of publicity that they wanted, but. Um, really, at the height of Maurice's fame in 1913, he. Uh, he throttled his his poor wife uh, May, and uh, he was arrested. And of course, that that made uh, a lot of uh, all the all the newspapers in the in the New York area. And that was kind of the beginning uh, of the uh, end of his career. Um, in in 1930 and 1931, Helene went through a very public divorce from the actor director, who I'm sure you've heard of, Lowell Sherman. Uh, who, uh, who, um, in 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 order to in order order to uh, to win the divorce case, he produced these fake um, pornographic books. He took um, her book plate and pasted. They were actually his, and pasted her book plate in his uh, books and uh, use them as evidence in court. And this, the press, of course, had a field day with this. And that was really, um, that was really the end of, of Helene Costello's uh, career. And then uh, the very uh, public divorce case of uh, John Barrymore and Dolores Costello in, in 1935, uh, so you, this was, as you said, this is not the kind of, of publicity that they that they wanted. Um, but uh, you know, to 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 get back but, to but yet that kind of publicity is the kind of thing that that legends are made of. I mean, we remember 
um, you know, Errol Flynn and Fatty Arbuckle and all these other people who had all kinds of scandalous publicity. Of course. And and sometimes we remember them, like in Fatty Arbuckle's case, more for the scandal than the work. Sad but true, yes, that that is true. Um, You know, John Barrymore, who really was, um, and I'm working on a book now, if I can give that a little plug, um, uh, was was America's, uh, and still is, uh, America's greatest actor because he... um, he kind of remade the stage in his own image with his famous Hamlet um, uh, in in 1922, and he brought method acting to to Hollywood uh, in in the early 30s. So unfortunately, what, what he's does... overshadowed by you know his his alcoholism and his his outrageous uh, demise in Hollywood in the 30s. Um, what does that mean exactly, method acting? Ah, well, that's a good question. I've, I've been doing a lot of research into that. But, you know, we think of method acting as uh, as uh, Marlon Brando, uh, for instance, where wherein you kind of channel the real person uh, inside you. Instead of acting, you kind of more more like become uh, the character. And this, this goes back to Stanislavski, who created the method, that was uh, really more natural and it was more generated by real emotion than just pretending. Um, and uh, if you look at John Barrymore's you know, great films uh, in, in the early 30s, like in, in Grand Hotel and Counselor at Law, he really goes to the mat emotionally. Uh, he was the first uh, actor to really sob uh, and, and really emote um, and he was a, a disciple of uh, of Stanislavski, and so so his his uh, in, in importance is 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 huge. Um, but we remember him um, for his his shenanigans and and uh, being being one of the great um, over the top uh, alcoholics of of the twentieth century. Didn't he knock around with W. C. Fields? Yes, um, they were great friends, and uh, they they had a, a a little group of friends uh, known today uh, in, as the Bundy Drive Boys, and they were they they were kind of like the like a really decadent uh, Algonquin Roundtable, and they gathered at uh, the artist John Decker's house, and and they drank like crazy, and said and did hilarious things. Um, and they were John Barrymore and, and, and W.C. Fields were, were two of the most prominent uh, members of the Bundy Drive Boys. And some of the younger, some of the, the, the younger people who would stop by were uh, were Anthony Quinn and Errol Flynn was was part of that group. Not surprisingly, I'm I'm remembering a story, and I'm not sure if I'm remembering it correctly, Terry. And and I don't know if you've heard this or if it's just an urban legend that. After John Barrymore died, this uh, wacky uh, roundtable stole his body from the funeral home and perched it in a chair and and drank as as if he were there with him. Well, I'm glad you you brought that up, and I I hate to be a killjoy. Actually, uh, Drew Barrymore commented commented on that recently. 
And as great a story as it is, sadly, it is not even a little bit true. And the reason that, um, that I know this is, um, for, for one thing, um, uh, that um, Errol Flynn and uh, those who put the story out all had very different versions of it. One version is he's on the couch. The other version is he's on a, a, a chair uh, pushed in front of the door. One version has Errol Flynn running out off the porch, screaming into the night. Flynn's own version was is that he went as far as the board. There are just so many, and and you know the, the thought of <laughs> of stealing a body um, from a Hollywood funeral home is kind of uh, kind of hard to swallow in itself because it would it would involve a lot of really grisly and um, and and you know, difficult things to have to do. Um, so sadly, the story—you know—I hate to debunk it. It's such a great story, but it, it, and, it's and, not true. And the reason that it hangs around or or seems true is that that particular group was known for outrageous antics. Yeah. I'm thinking of one of their trips to Mexico, for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know the trip I'm talking about. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Uh huh. But 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 also. Um, they they uh, when when World War Two broke out, they all um, they all headed down, smashed, of course, to enlist. You know, I mean, these are guys in their <laughs> their sixties who couldn't be less suited for for uh, for battle. <laughs> well, let's let's get back to the uh, Costellos. Um, Yes, we digress, but that's okay. No, no, it's it's it's. They're all interwoven. You know, uh, John Barrymore really is kind of the fifth Costello because he came into the family at a very vulnerable time um, in 1925 when the family was about to break up, and kind of he was kind of the icing on the cake um, that that uh, that kind of drove Maurice Costello from the family. Um, to go out on his own, and um, so yeah, they're they're all kind of interwoven biographically. You know, we talked about um, Maurice Costello, and then later Helene Costello. Um, were those the the two best known members of the Costello family? And were there other Costellos that were in, as they say these days, in the biz? Uh, well, actually, um, May Costello, who was Maurice's wife, um, who was the mother of Dolores, who's uh, the mother of John Drew, who's the mother of Drew Barrymore, um, really, uh, she was, she was a, a stage mother that, uh, if, if you looked at her in, in the context of, of today, she would have been one of the first, uh, agents in Hollywood because she was the one who negotiated um, uh, Helene and Dolores' first contract with Warner Brothers. She renegotiated John Barrymore's contract um, with Warner Brothers. uh, And she also was in a lot of films um, during the early uh, Vinograph era um, when when Maurice Costello was America's uh, most popular star. Uh, so she's important too. Um, so there, there are really four. I mean, the whole family made its contributions 
um, to to the history of film. Is Drew Barrymore sort of the the last of the Costellos, or are there other descendants out there floating around? No, there there were there were no there were no male heirs to the name, uh, as it were. Um, but you know they were kind of absorbed into the Barrymore uh, family, and if if it wasn't for Dolores, the Barrymores themselves would have died out because Lionel had no surviving children. And uh, Ethel Barrymore uh, married into the cult of, of cult uh, guns of fame. Um, and uh, so the, her name was, was, uh, was absorbed in, into the cults. Um, so the only, uh, w- without Dolores's uh, giving um, Jack a, a son, then there would be no Barrymores left either. This is fascinating how interwoven some of these uh, some of these things were, especially before and and into the thirties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I think besides um, being being the uh, being the wife of. And that's that's not Dolores's only importance because she had an interesting uh, career in that she really was the first actress to try to be a part-time star to try you know sort of a feminist uh, aspect to this. It's these three women, May and Dolores and Helene, against the male Hollywood establishment. Uh, which was, of course, almost exclusively male uh, in in the 30s, and they took it on really very fearlessly. Um, and uh, Dolores wanted to have more of uh, wanted to put family before fame, um, with various varying degrees of success. Um, she retired briefly to have um, uh, their daughter. Uh, Dee Dee, who is 91 and still going strong, interestingly, the the daughter of of John and Dolores. Um, and then in 1931, um, they uh, they brought Dolores back. Really, to this is now during the early sound era, but there was a clause in her contract that allowed Warner Brothers to cancel it if she got pregnant. <laughs> and so they kind of forgave it the first time, but when she uh, became pregnant again with Drew's father, they canceled the contract. So it's kind of pretty horrific uh, by any standard. And then Dolores kind of um, uh, retired for four years and then came back with this huge success uh, as dearest in, uh, in, in David O. Selznick's uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy. Um, so she was, even though she didn't didn't make a lot of films in the 30s. When she came back, it was it it was was really uh, in a in a very important way uh, because she became the darling of of the of um, the two greatest American screen auteurs of the 30s and 40s, uh, respectively. First in Selznick's Little Lord Fauntleroy, and then uh, 1942 as Isabel Amberson Minifer. In Wells's *Magnificent* and Ambersons, so uh, 
she she kept kind of uh, going away and then making these in- incredible comebacks. Did any of the, the Costellos uh, appear on stage at all, or were they born mostly of the emerging uh, film industry? Well, that's interesting, because Maurice Costello uh, had been a working actor, and that's how he made his living, uh, for a decade. He was um, kind of a secondary uh, performer. Uh, he, he was... It, it, the uh, publicity hounds and films kind of cooked him up as as having been a Broadway star, but he never was. And and he was aging out of a profession uh, that was at itself aging out, and he would have just disappeared, but he just happened to be at the right place at the right time with the right look uh, and uh, at a time when... Uh, film producers were trying to trying to cultivate uh, you know better movies um, instead of just people miming and jumping around and, and things like that. Um, they were they needed experienced stage actors like Maurice Costello to come in and, and kind of legitimize the, the profession. So he he just happened to be there. Otherwise. Uh, he, who knows, uh, he, he was struggling along for years. They, they, uh, they often went hungry, uh, between, um, jobs. Uh, they would eat peanut butter because, because it was cheap and there was, there was nothing else to eat. But then, uh, when he hit it big and he hit it really big in, in, uh, starting in 1910, the money just you know, rolled in. And um, they really weren't, as, as I was alluding to before, they really weren't prepared for this avalanche of, of uh, adulation, um, particularly from, from women. Um, and that didn't, that didn't uh, interestingly, they, they did better as a family when they were poor than they did when they were successful, which is, is sad and ironic. You know, they worked so hard, but then... Success kind of kind of ruined them, personally. And and that they're not the only ones that's happened to. Of course, of course. Yeah, we we say, oh, if I only had money and fame, how how wonderful everything would be. But as we know, that's that's not often the case. Well, I have to say, I'm I'm fascinated about what you shared about. Uh, Maurice Costello's uh, contribution to, to filmmaking in terms of slowing the actors down. And as you were yeah. talking about that, I had this picture in my mind of Charlie Chaplin and, right. and, and how people use strobe lights to imitate the, the jerky motion right. of that film. And, and it's just fascinating to me that there was somebody who looked at that and said, yeah, it doesn't look right. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we right. Got, we got to try and do something to to counter the jerky nature of the film. Of course, it's it's all smoother now, but you know, right. at the time, that's that was the nature of film. Right. Well, it's it's taken film historians uh, maybe too long to really figure out, you know, what they really looked like uh, then in their time. Were were they really run fast? Were they really jerky? And the answer uh, is mostly yes, because, um, you know, gags were funnier. There was more of a cartoony aspect 
and and an unrealness that audiences loved. And you see you see things speeded up well into and and you know when they wanted to laugh or or they wanted to kind of cook up the gag, they would speed it up. And this is called under cranking. It it, it you know without getting too film nerdy. Um, the slower you cranked um, the film when you projected it, the faster it went. And they found, you know, it also saved film because film film stock was expensive. Um, so the the time, and you know, you can go and see Maurice's films on YouTube. The Picture Idol is fantastic. I urge everybody to to go see it because even though it's 1912, really very early on, it is in almost every sense a modern film, and it has uh, one of the funniest uh, eating scenes, one of the great eating scenes of, of film history. So I, I highly recommend you 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 know go to your computers and and you pull up the Picture Idol on YouTube. Well, I, I appreciate that, and I will do exactly that this afternoon, <laughs> Terry. Thank you for the recommendation. Sure. And and thank you for sharing all this uh, information with me and the listeners and also uh, in your book, Films First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos by Terry Schulman. Uh, Terry, you mentioned uh, that you have another book in the works. Um, what What is next for you? Well, it is it is really the first complete contemporary biography of John Barrymore, um, this this towering uh, figure uh, in in the history of of both the stage and the screen. Not many actors can say that. Uh, and in addition to being you know you know arguably the most fascinating and <laughs> complex, <laughs> excuse me, of all the the great Hollywood. Uh, stars of the classic age I, I think he's at the top of the list and of course his life was just so over the top so i think it'll make a pretty good read well terry thanks again and uh keep up the good work i always um try and get guests to share with listeners where they can find out more about you and your work past present and future do you have a website I do not. I do not. But you, you can just Google me because I'll pop up. All right. Terry Chester Schulman, thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Have a great weekend. Take care. Bye you bye. too. Thanks. Bye. That was uh, Terry Chester Schulman. He is an acclaimed author and a veteran historical journalist whose work has appeared nationally in magazines and newspapers and the author of a new book called Film's First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos. And uh, we're going to have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. In fact, we have a lot more coming up. We're going to talk about Prince next hour as we kick the weekend off early with... Uh, a music segment, if you will. Um, the uh, uh, From the UK, I'm going to talk with uh, British music journalist and broadcaster Paul Sexton about his new book, Prince, A Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia. That's coming up at the top of the hour. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to take a short break. If you're listening to us on... WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions 
and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click Hello that there, mouse. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. 
Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I went to see a, a play right here lately. It was one of them classical plays. And it was, uh, it was wrote by a fellow named William Shakespeare that lived over here in the old country here a while back. And it's a play, it's called Hamlet. And it was named after this young boy, Hamlet, that appeared in the play. And it was pretty good, except that they don't speak as good English as we do. <laughs> now, let's see, Hamlet, he, he, lived, he lived in this castle over in the old country with his mama and daddy. You know where it was that his daddy was king over this land. And also living with him there was a fellow named Claudius. Now, Claudius was Hamlet's uncle on his daddy's side. And before the play ever opened, this fellow Claudius plotted and killed Hamlet's daddy so that he might gain the throne and then married Hamlet's mama. And that made him Hamlet's stepdaddy. And, well, all do try to remember that if you can because you will need it later on. <laughs> now, there was a fellow Polonius. He lived there. He was a kind of advisor to the king. And there was a fellow named Horatio. He was Hamlet's buddy. He lived there. Then there was a girl named Ophelia that was visiting there. He, she was Hamlet's sweetheart that he had met at BYPU. <laughs> and, uh, well, there's all, there's all kinds of maids and soldiers and stable boys and things like that that live there too, you know. And remember, before the play ever opens up, Hamlet's daddy's already dead. And when it, when it opens up, it opens up on these two soldiers that was a standing guard one night and this ghost come up on them. And one, one, one of them says, one of them says, hark. He said, no, they said hark a whole lot back then. <laughs> he, said, he says, hark, what thing is this I see before me? And the other one says, let us flee and seek out young Hamlet, for behold, it bears a visage like unto his father. And it, it did too, it looked just exactly like him. <laughs> You couldn't have took a better picture uptown. They, they were in the house to get Hamlet, but he had just come in from high school and was tired and had went on to bed. But anyhow, they told him about it, and he got on up and put his britches on and went on outdoors with them. And when he got there, the ghost started talking to him. Says, Behold, Hamlet, says, Look on me, for I am the ghost of thy father. Then it went on to tell him, you know, how it was that Claudius had plotted and killed him, you know, like I told you a while ago. Well, when it got on telling him, it made Hamlet swear to seek out vengeance on his former uncle and present stepdaddy, Claudius. And after Hamlet swore it, while the ghost went on off, and none of them ever seen it after that. And it, it was right there that Hamlet gave that soliloquy about being or not being. And, uh, well, for them that don't know, a soliloquy is a kind of a self-talk. You know, it is. Where you kindly, you know, sit and look away off and kindly talk to yourself. And that's what he was a doing. Only he wasn't sitting down, he was walking. 
And when he, when he come close to the end of it, he come up on this young girl, Ophelia, and he says to himself, he says, soft, I see Ophelia fire. <laughs> well, he sat down and started talking to her. Asked her how she was and how her daddy was and how her mama was and different ones. And while he was talking, he looked and he seen a fella hiding behind a cedar chest. And he did, and he took out his sword and he run the fella. He run him upstairs and he run him downstairs. But he couldn't catch him and it made him mad and he come back to Ophelia, mad at her. And he hit her in the face and he throwed her on the ground. And he, he, he says, get thee to a nunnery for thy face is a vile thing before my eyes. Now, it, it was right here that Hamlet first started acting like that he wasn't all that. <laughs> well, he... See... Well, see, he figured, he figured that the people that plotted and killed his daddy thought that he wasn't right in his mind, they'd talk around him, you know? But, but they didn't. One night he was up in his mama's room telling her good night. And he looked over there and he seen these curtains rustle just the least little bit. And he eased out his sword and he, he aged over to where it was the curtains was rustling. And he run the fella through. And the fella fell and he seen it was that fella Polonius that I told you about a while ago. <laughs> well, what he'd done, he picked him up and took him over and throwed him out this little window in this creek that run by. And none of them ever missed him after that. <laughs> And it was right after that that this carnival come through. Sideshow, show folks, you know. They come through and Hamlet had them to put on a show exactly the way that the murder of the king was committed. And let me tell you, when they got to the place in the play that the king was killed, Hamlet's stepdaddy got up out of his chair and he says, hold. He says, cease this wild carrying on and evil acting in the palace of the king. And he run them all out of the house. And it was right there that Hamlet first knowed that he was going to have to get even with his stepdaddy for killing his daddy. And it was also right there that Hamlet's stepdaddy knowed that he was going to have to get shut of that boy or he'd have trouble out of it. <laughs> well, what he'd done, what he'd done was the next day he put on a big sword fight between Hamlet and another fella. And he, he give this other fella a sword with a poison point on it. And he give Hamlet a plain sword and he had a bowl full of poison wine for Hamlet to drink just in case he won the sword fight. Well, he put up his hands and he says, lay on. And they went to it, Hamlet back the fella, and he fell it back Hamlet and back and forth like that for a while until pretty soon Hamlet got cut on the arm by that poison sword. And he commenced to weaken, but he fit harder than he ever did and he kept backing the fella off and backing him off till he run him through. And the fella fell dead. And Hamlet went over to take a drink of that poison wine and his mama, she knowed it was poison. She took it and drunk it herself, and she fell dead. And then Hamlet, with his last breath, went up to his stepdaddy and run him through, and the stepdaddy fell dead. And then Hamlet, he had done about all he could do, and he <laughs> fell dead. <laughs> and it's a pretty good show. <laughs> and, and the moral of it is, though, I reckon, if you... If you was to ever kill a fella and then marry his wife, I'd be extra careful not to tell my stepson. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
wash my hands I don't touch my face I stay at home Shelter in place Social distance Don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves Stay away from church Should I sneeze? I do it in my elbow or up my sleeve. Six feet apart. That is the rule. And I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands. Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors And I'm sick of what I see Two more weeks of quarantine Will be the death of me a trip to the grocery store to buy a TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find is 16 honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. Yeah, two more weeks of this quarantine's gonna be. Death of me, the death of me. You know they say this is war, but we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Pork Chop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bat soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized as <laughs> soon as I regained consciousness. From the Tom Sumner Tom Sumner 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 